Well, we're continuing in our series of Romans, and as you can see, it is a book, an amazing book that lays out the biggest challenges in the world today. And I think if we just pause for a moment, all of us would say at times, life is really hard. Life can be really difficult. And, and there's a part of us that just cries out, God, why does it take so long for things to change? And that's especially hard when we live in a culture that is so instant oriented right if i want a book i just hit amazon and i could have that book on my front door within hours if i need something i can find so many things so quickly but there's another side of us we all know things take time we all know that there's process to things if, if you're going to make a, a, a great wine there, there's process if you want to watch an oak tree grow strong, it takes time. If you want a healthy marriage, it takes work and it takes time. If you want a strong family, it takes work and it takes time. If you want a profession, a career, it takes work and it takes time. As we think about this dimension of life, it taking time, it just starts raising questions about when life is so difficult, when life is hard. And we start asking ourselves, not merely does God love us. If I asked you that, you'd say, yes, of course God loves me. Could we hone the question just a little bit? Because I think there's a question that lurks deeper in our hearts sometimes. And the question is this. Does God like me? We all know that question, right? Our children will tell us, well, you have to love me. You're my parent. But the child wonders, do you like me? I think sometimes when it comes to God, we ask some of those same kinds of questions. But just like we moved it from love to like, could we... Push it a little further. What does God think of me when I fail? Does God like me? Let's see what the Bible has to say today. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to Romans chapter 8? Remember Romans chapter 8, I tried to describe it in different ways. It's sort of like the pinnacle, right? Things are moving in the book of Romans in such deep, theological, powerful ways, but then it starts coming into chapter 8, and God is saying, now let me tell you what it means for you today. Let me speak into your life so that you understand what I'm doing today. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, follow along as I read. Paul wrote these words, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit, He Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father, we just invite Your Spirit in a fresh way to open our minds this morning to the truth of Your Word. You didn't give us these words just to read, but to ponder and to reflect on, to allow them to shape us and mold us and change us. So God, we ask in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit that your word would change every one of us from the inside. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as we dive deeper into this passage, remember we left off in verse 17, and if you just let your eyes go to verse 17, he talks about being heirs with Christ or co-heirs with Christ, and then he says this idea of we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. So at that point, he's now turning the corner to go to this idea of sufferings. And so what he now wants you and me to know is, here's my first point, the age to come far outweighs this age. The age to come far outweighs this age. What Paul does is he sets up a tension for us. That we live today in a tension of the spirit and the flesh and what God is doing. So let's just notice a little bit in the passage. In verse 18, he says this present time, or some of you have a translation, this present age. And what he compares it to is the age to come, and here he calls it the glory that is to be revealed. So what he wants us to see right at the front is that we are at a very unique time in history, that we are in this present age, but there is an age to come. It's the age of glory. And then the other thing that we should begin to notice is that Paul links up sufferings and glory. They're wedded together. We could even say they're welded together so that they do not come apart. Or if I wanted to say it a little differently, I would say it this way. Suffering is the way to glory. Suffering is the way to glory. We live in a sin-infested world. And when I say these things, I just want to pause for a moment. I just want us to pause and reflect on the sufferings 
that are right here in this room. There are people that are fighting for their lives. They've got health issues when they were dreaming that their latter years would be beautiful and free from pain and that it would be just an awesome time. And their bodies tell a different story. It just breaks down. There's people here that have stuff going on health-wise you'll never know. They're not going to tell you. But every day is a pain. Every day is suffering. Every day is struggling. There's just illnesses that are constantly there. And these illnesses are, are, are not merely physical. There's people that have mental, emotional challenges that are profound and deep. And they can't shake it off. And every day they have to confront that. Whether it's a depression, whether it's an anxiety, whether it's, it's a fear, but it, it's so entrenched in their souls that the word suffering begins to capture what they're experiencing. And then there's a whole other dimension of life right here in this room the sufferings of broken relationships. People are struggling to hold together marriages. And if you only knew what was happening behind those doors, what's going on in homes right here in our church, as people fight the fight of faith, as, as they hope and hold on to God's truth, but, but at the same time that they're holding on, they, they feel the fabric ripping apart in their marriage. They're like, God, this hurts. The rejection is painful. And many of us here have suffered broken marriages. You didn't get married thinking that that was going to happen. You had dreams. You had hopes. You had plans. But this world can be cruel. And things come about that you never anticipated. Families getting ripped apart. And there's story after story right here in this room where the fabric of the family has been ripped apart and the kids can't figure it out and they're trying to make sense of it. Oh, even if the family stays intact. There's the struggle of an angry dad, a miserable mom, stuff going on in the home, and you're like, I gotta get out. I gotta get away. There's gotta be something better than this. And it's the sufferings in the relationship. And then there's just circumstances, things that you and I have no control over. You could go to work tomorrow and your boss just says, you're done. It's over. Maybe it happened last week. Never anticipated it coming. Circumstances, whether it's related to health or whether it's related to relationships, things come upon you. And you're like, whoa. 
I didn't see that coming. I can't change it. And it, it, it just keeps like a weight holding you down and pressing you. That's what Paul's talking about here. It, it's, it's like we, we have to take a moment and recognize this world. Sometimes it's called this evil age. Jesus even referenced this kind of world. We're like a sin-infested world filled with greed and pride and selfishness and self-centeredness. And, and all of us experience all of it. And sometimes we're, we get through a season of life and, and we feel strong in it. And we find our way making it. And then there's other times we, we, we make it. It's like climbing up a mountain. And you're like, I can't go any further. And there's some here today. I don't know if I can make it another day. I don't know if I can make another step. But it goes deeper, doesn't it? I don't know if I care to make it another step. And then you start asking your questions. Well, I know God loves me. But does he like me? Does he really like me? What is my relationship with God? So it's worth pausing and reflecting on the sufferings of this present time. And what it's trying to tell us is the glory to come outweighs anything that is happening right now in this room. There's a glory that's coming that outweighs everything. So Paul dives in and let's just look at verse 19. He says the creation waits. He, he makes creation, inanimate trees and hills and mountains and rivers and streams. That's what creation is, right? And, and he says creation, like a person, is longing, eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's, the word there is like a, a, a child getting on his or her toes to try to look over the wall. That's what creation is doing. There, there's something so wired into this world that Paul describes it as this longing. Verse 20, this creation was subjected to futility. Some of you might have the word frustration. Well, you know where that comes from. Paul's just writing back to Genesis chapter 3 when, when there was this rebellion against God. And what did God do? He cursed the ground. And he said, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that you're going to make bread. Right? There's now toil introduced into the garden where there wasn't before because of the rebellion. And that's the analysis that we've been studying with the intrusion of sin. And it, and it brings about a frustration, a futility. The ground would now bring thorns and thistles instead of beautiful trees and flowering trees and fruit trees. He says, because of Him who subjected it, it was God 
Just remember when you read Genesis 3, God never cursed man, he cursed the ground. He never cursed people, he cursed the ground. Verse 21, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So there's this hope that we see at the end of verse 20 that brings us into 21, that creation itself is longing to be set free from this, this toil that has been brought. That God is doing. But look at the last description, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. There's just this groan, this, this sighing. And he says it's, it's like pains of childbirth. What a beautiful picture. Jesus used it too, right? He said as the end's coming, he said it's like a woman in childbirth and there's pains. But what's beautiful about this imagery is no matter how intense the childbirth pain is, there's a hope, isn't there, of the baby being born. God wants us to have that picture that's why he says that the age to come outweighs this present suffering. Let me try to give you a, a little picture of the sufferings here and where they're coming from. At first is, is this, is that there's the sense of this present age, and, and if you can imagine an ark going to the, pres or the, the future world, our sufferings, include things like world opposition, right? We live in a world and, and we feel the sufferings coming from this. The world opposes what you believe. The world resists what you think about God and that God matters. What you think about marriage and sex, all these things, the world stands opposed to that. There's not only the world's opposition, but there's human frailty. That's what we looked at in Romans chapter 7. I, I long for this to be different. I do, though, the very things I don't want to do, Paul says. Are you okay with your finitude? Are you okay that God made you dependent are you okay that God made you weak? Because He did. That's what it means to be human. There's a weakness, there's a frailty, and God made it that way as we would depend upon Him. We'd trust Him. But we're uncomfortable with that. And as a world, we constantly try to overcome human frailty. Some of us are perfectionists. You know why? Because we can't accept our limitations. Some of us just can't accept that there's limits in our life, in our time, in our world that God has hardwired in, that it's all baked into the cake, if you will. It's limitations. And then there's spiritual warfare. There's an enemy that's after you, constantly whispering into your ear, you're, you're a mess. You're a wreck. You'll never amount to anything, right? But now compare that to the glory to come. Right? Because the glory to come is moving in a whole new direction. It starts with God's splendor. That's, that's what God's glory is. It's God in all His beauty and all His majesty. 
It's the, the new heaven and the new earth. This earth, can you imagine it not groaning? Can you imagine it not longing? Can you imagine it being at peace? Can you imagine it being pristine? Can you imagine it being perfect? Because that's where we're going. When we talk about heaven, we're not talking about an abstract world. We're talking about spending eternity on the new earth here with Jesus Christ in His presence. That's the glory to come. And then there's resurrected life. Wow! Illness is gone. The, the, the parts of our soul that we want changed will be changed. We will be transformed. It will all be beautiful. But it all took a lot, didn't it? It took the blood of Jesus Christ. It took Jesus Christ, the God-man, coming to this earth to show, first of all, that He loves you. But He's also going to show us something deeper, that He really likes you. He is so fond of you. He takes so much delight in you. Think of a parent. A child throws a temper tantrum. A child writes on the wall. A child throws his plate of food on the floor. A teenager, and you just make up the list. And the child just comes to the parent. you got to love me. But do you like me? Do you like me? Before we go deeper there, as you'll see in a moment in Romans 8, I want to just again pause. And let's meet with the Lord. When you came in, you should have received some elements for the Lord's Supper. It's a time to recognize what God was doing in order to change us, to transform us. The God-man came. You hear what I say? The God-man. He took on flesh. And He lived among us. And His body was broken. His body was broken so that one day our body could be made whole. Part of the sufferings is that what Jesus wanted was that He would enter into suffering, but then we would share in His sufferings. So on the night that He was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it. And He said, this is My body. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of Me. Let's take it together. world is hard. There's illness. There's difficulties. And God saw it all. Sometimes we say that God is so holy that He can't stand sin in His presence. You ever hear that before? There's a truth in that. But don't be deceived. 
Because if you say it in a certain way, it almost sounds like sin is more powerful than God. It almost sounds like sin controls God. Oh, there's sin over there. I, I, I can't go over there. No. Not our God. Sin will never control God. How do I know that? Because he walked right into your life. And he walked right into my life. He didn't flinch. He didn't turn the other way. He saw all the garbage that I don't want you to see in my life. He saw it all. I didn't have to cover it up. I didn't have to hide. I didn't have to lie to him. I don't have to deceive him. I don't have to act like it's not there. It's there. And this God, who is holy, walked right in. He walked right in. Oh, don't ever think that this holy God is afraid of sin. As we saw last time in Romans 8, he's not only not afraid of sin, he's willing to roll up his sleeves and sit side by side with you and me. That's what he does. By the power of the Spirit, the Spirit dwells within us. He's not controlled by my sin. He's not controlled by your sin. It doesn't matter what it is, how bad it is, how deep it is, how long it's gone on. What Jesus wants you to know right now is that he forgives sin. He forgives failure. So just like the parent that has to deal with the writing on the wall, the plates that are thrown, the temper tantrums. You know what the mother says. I don't like that you wrote on the wall. I don't like that you threw your food across the room. I don't like that you're taking drugs to satisfy your soul. The list goes on. But what does the mom come back and do? But I like you. I like you. I like your smile. I like your eyes. I like the kind things you do. We're a mixture, aren't we? So on the night that we were betrayed, or Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, he blessed it, and he gave thanks, and he said this, without my blood being shed, there will be no forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Now we're ready to finish Romans 8. Now we're ready to go a little further into Romans 8. I want to give you a picture of a scale. Imagine a big scale, right? Our future glory is so great, it's so heavy, that it outweighs our present sufferings. So now let's go into my second point. Because of the redemption that took place, because of what Jesus did for us at the cross, we live with hope even in our present sufferings. We live with hope even in our present sufferings. It said the creation groans, but look what it says in verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly. 
Now he describes the we, you and me, as the first fruits of the Spirit. That is that the Spirit is inside us. The Spirit is at work even as we grow, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Why are we groaning? Because we're frustrated. We're frustrated with some of our moral failures. We're frustrated with our illnesses, our sicknesses. We're frustrated with circumstances. And we just groan is what he's saying. All these things in this world that are waiting on, weighing on us, it creates this frustration. But even as there's this weight of frustration, there is an internal longing for God to end it all. End the weakness, end the craziness in this world. That's what he's talking about here. But there's a phrase that I want you to see very, very carefully. It's in verse 23 at the very end. The redemption of our bodies. Our bodies are a significant part of us, aren't they? They're not the only part. We have a mind or spiritual dimension of us, and we have our bodies. But notice we all have clothes on. Notice we cover our bodies. Notice we try to protect our bodies. Notice we don't typically want others to see our bodies. They're deeply personal, aren't they? In fact, they begin to identify you. It's not the only identification. Certainly our minds, as we think differently and live differently, those begin to differentiate us as well, but our bodies differentiate us. And so when I say that God loves us, but he also likes us, I look at a verse like 23, and God says, I'm redeeming your body. It's a way of God saying, I like who I made you. I like it, and I'm going to change it to the way it was supposed to be. It's like the mom who cleans the writing off the wall. It's the mom who cleans up the plates that were thrown. God steps in. Now I said last time, and I gave you a picture, and I want to bring that picture back, right? It's a picture of our lives are like a jungle. And inside the jungle is a beautiful garden, and that garden is the Holy Spirit. And what he's starting to do is is organize your life. He's trying to change your affections. He's starting to work inside you. And it's a process where we contribute and God is at work. Remember, this was a picture of a drone flying over the jungle. And there's this beautiful garden called the Holy Spirit working in your heart. I said, well, why does God do this over time? And I said, faith. God wants us to trust Him, to lean into Him, to rely on Him because of our finitude, because of our limitations, because of our weakness. But I want to give you another reason. And the reason is God values process. 
God values process. No matter where you are on the creation of this world, whether you're a young earth or an old earth, whether you think that life is only 6,000 years old or you think it's billions of years old, it doesn't matter because both views require process. God could have instantly made the world like that, but he didn't. He developed things over time. Life is developed over time. You're born and you grow. Jesus Christ, it says in Luke, it says that he grew over time in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. There's change. And so God uses process. Probably a picture of process is, is like an artist. And it says in Ephesians that God is an artist. It says we are his workmanship. We are his drawing board. We are his artwork. We are his painting. We are his pottery. We are his craftsmanship. So I think of Leonardo da Vinci, an artist. He could do paintings quickly, but he didn't. He did them over time. And he'd splash some paint on a canvas. You think of the Mona Lisa and how long it took him to paint it. You think of how many drawings he made of lips and eyes and hands. Do you know today we have 7,000 pages of observations of Leonardo da Vinci so that he could do the paintings that we so appreciate, like the Lord's Supper, the Mona Lisa. And he'd splash some paint, and then he'd put a little bit more on, and another month would go by, and he'd splash a little more give it a little bit more. And then he'd bring some texture and he just took his time. I saw this week Bill Gates bought 18 pages of the 7,000 for $30 million. <laughs> process is important to God. There's a process where God is taking us and that circle is going to grow and it's going to change. And so that's where he's going in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. What hope? The hope that that circle is going to continue to grow. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I don't see all that God is doing in your life and in my life, but I know that God is working because He says that. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our frailties, in our weaknesses, in our shortcomings. So if God is redeeming your body, if He's making He's saying, I like you, I like what I made, and I'm going to make it the way it's supposed to be. That's where He's going, the redemption. The Spirit is liberating us from the entanglements of sin that distort our true selves. All that jungle around that beautiful garden, that's the sin that entangles us and it distorts the beauty of the garden. And God is slowly working that back. So as I said, suffering is the way to glory. God always does His best. God always does what's good, always does what's right. And so what i got to tell you is that the suffering is the best way to the best place because God knows exactly what He's doing. He doesn't have oh no moments. 
He doesn't say, oh, I wish I would have thought of this ahead of time. God knows exactly what he's doing, and he's working it out. And there's hope. For we do not even know what to pray as we ought. But look what happens. God so likes you, he's not going to let you be the way you are. God likes what he created, and he saw you in your perfect state, what it was going to be like being made in the image of Christ. He sees that. We don't, but we hope towards that circle growing bigger and eventually taking over the whole jungle. It says in verse 27, he searches hearts and knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for you. That's what it means by the saints. The Spirit is praying for you right now. He's praying for you to overcome. He's praying for your victory. He's praying for your transformation. He's praying for all these things. If you're fighting an illness, if you're dealing with broken relationships, the Spirit, you need to know, is praying for you. That you will persevere in the sufferings according to the will of God. Nothing ever touches your life without God giving it permission. But I want you to leave with this. There is a day coming. There is a day coming and everything will be instantaneously transformed, changed in the twinkling of an eye. That is the hope that we keep looking for even though we are in this present age of suffering. There is a day coming. Father, we praise you for the day that's coming. We rejoice in what you are doing. God, we don't understand all of it. We don't like much of it. But God, we know that you're at work because your word tells us that. And you, even in the midst of our failures, you don't turn away. You like us. You like us. You tell us that we're the apple of your eye, that you delight in us. You love our smiles. You love our eyes. You love the way we walk and talk. You made us the way you wanted us to be, and you are creating us into the image of your Son. God, help us to wait for that day. I pray in Jesus' name.